Just as you introduce me, I'm Chris Leg. I am the, uh, the lead pastor at South Spring Baptist Church in Tyler, Texas, which is um, demographically probably pretty similar to you guys, a pretty young church as far as who's there, lots and lots and lots of children. About On a Sunday morning, about one in every four persons is, uh, is under the age of 10, one in every three persons is under the age of 18. And uh, so pretty much we just don't even meet for church. Everyone just does children's ministry on Sunday morning. <laughs> and that's it. Like, that's pretty much it. Everybody comes, we serve the kids, and then we go home. Um, and, uh, which is great, which is training up a new generation of believers to be prepared for whatever, because God only knows what the next generation of believers in America is going to face. Um, and so, quite literally, and so for us to be training them to be ready to face whatever that is, uh, is, is a high calling indeed, and a worthwhile calling. Um, okay, so let's let's jump. Can you jump to the PowerPoint? And we'll. I'm just going to do this for the introduction. I won't be on PowerPoint for long. Um, so, 25 years ago, three days ago, um, we got married, and uh, and so it has been. We're actually kind of doubling up, doing a little anniversary trip here with you guys, and so that's fun too. And uh, so, thanks for that. And uh, <laughs> and so we got married, and then <laughs> not long um, over the next few years, we had these. Three guys, and in the midst of that whole conversation and process, that did it finally. Okay, now let's see if it'll. I may have to close it and open it again. Dropbox is funny that way. Um, and so these guys came along, and and as we were raising them, and Ginger schooling them, and 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 we um uh, we decide that we believe that God has called us through uh, numerous different things. We'd always talked about adopting, and then and then um that a speaker came and spoke somewhere where we were, and we decided, you know what, we really feel like God is calling us to adopt. Um, and especially the speaker pointed out that, that African-American boys don't get adopted. And, and that the rate is incredible of kids who go through the, through the foster system, and they go straight from the foster system, and within a year they're in the prisons because they don't know how to live outside of state care. And so they go straight from one state facility to a different state facility. And so... And this guy pointed out, like, we could, we could shut down something like 70% of people in prison, especially men in prison, uh, spent time in the foster system. And so, and so when you can rescue a kid out of that, you're, you're protecting them possibly from ever entering the prison system. And that reasonably the church could actually in two generations remove about half of the people from the prison system. I'm in the United States. So how's that, how's that for a, a world-changing goal for the church? Well, what it would take, at least in Texas, is for one family in every six evangelical churches to adopt one child. So six evangelical churches, if one family in one of those churches would adopt one child, we would close the foster system in Texas. And there's only 10,000 foster kids right now in Texas. And so it's, it's an amazing that this whole, the way it's all pictured, the way it's played out, the way the families work and all that kind of stuff is, is really pretty amazing. And if you're concerned with politics, one of the most amazing things is that if we rescued those kids, if they followed the pattern, um, then, then the evangelical churches would control all the votes in the future. Um, because those numbers, those numbers begin to so impact, um, even just if we just church voted the way we do now. So what happened was, so we're prepared. So you can see all these skinny little big-headed kids. And, uh, so we're prepared, and this was our first. Is that one right there? And uh, so Michael, that's him standing perfectly still. It's as close to still as he gets. Right there is a photograph. And uh, he's, now, he's now older than that. And then um, our second one who came along was uh, this one. 
And uh, that was actually at Pine Cove, the, uh, the contest. That's funny how that opened. It must be different because um, it's multiple pictures behind each other. But that one right there um, was, I'm not kidding, the Pine Cove uh, theme night was Afros and Rodeos. <laughs> and she won. <laughs> so it was, it was awesome. Um, next, I think there's another one. So that's us now, or at least last year. And uh, it has been a real adventure. So also, I'm at, again, I mentioned I was at South Spring. I think there's a picture there of South Spring. Next picture. That's our church. Uh, I don't have anything to do with any of that. So I can brag about how beautiful a setting that we're in. It's a great place and uh, a very re relaxing place, a very restful place, a very fun place. We laugh a lot. It's casual, and, and we really believe that casual and sacred are not in competition with each other, that those can be things that go together. And so um, it's, it's really uh, a fantastic place to be. And so it's, it's good to hear from your pastor the same type of language today at lunch that, that we talk about with our church. So that's, that's good on you guys. Um, the book of Hebrews essentially calls for that, that it should be a joy to, to lead God's people. Um, often it's not. And so it's great that you're a church that makes sure it's a joy for your pastor to lead you. And also, I am owner-operator of Alathia Family Counseling Center. And, uh, and this is, I, I mean, honestly, this sounds very self-serving. It's not. This, you, you could not have better news about this, but that um, Josh, who's right here, is just opening Alathia Family Counseling Center in Houston. And so high-caliber Christian counseling. Um, you're about to have another, or you actually do have another opportunity to be involved in that here in, in Houston. And so we're, we're very excited about that. I'm super proud of him for that. That's a, a big deal. So um, it's, not, it's not like a franchise or anything. He's opening it. It's just going to go under the same name and the same principles. And so, so you're going to get to hear some of those principles because everything we, uh, Alethea, or Alethea is the Greek word for truth. Um, it means uncovered, to be revealed. And, uh, and so everything we do is founded on the idea that, it, it, that our lives are messed up because of our, relationship, our poor relationship to the truth. Um, that the, what's messing up our lives has to do with the way we are relating to the truth. And a lot of what I'm going to talk about tonight is going to fit in with that really well. So um, let me jump into this. Um, in my mind, uh, one of the greatest disappointments, I, I didn't ask Trent this question, but um, I'll be surprised if it's not this. I think one of the greatest disappointments for me as a pastor over the last seven years is, is how often someone sits in church and they, they listen to sermons and they go to different things and then you find out that, that someone in the marriage is unfaithful and has been. Or, or they just kind of, you get, you get an email, hey, we're, we're divorcing, um, we've decided we're done. And, and the lack of more potent impact on Christian marriages I think is one of the great disappointments of being in a church. Um, and so doing a little research on that, I, I just I found something out that, that was fascinating to me. And you may have heard this over the years because this, this was reported years ago, is that people who claim to be Christians, even people who claim to be born again, um, have about the same divorce rates and infidelity rates as people who don't. Um, that that does not seem to impact. Claiming to be a Christian or claiming to be born again doesn't seem to impact your marriage very much. However... A recent study was also done by a sociologist in, um, at uh, the University of Connecticut, Dr. Wright, and he ran it a little bit differently, and he gave all different variables and then connected it to, these, to this divorce um, conversation as well. Turns out, uh, here's what he found, um, that, that 
that's shocking to us when we hear that, that, that claiming to be a Christian, even claiming to be born again, doesn't affect your marriage very much or your success rate of your marriage. And by the way, those are just marriages that fail by divorce. Um, we all know marriages, and maybe some of, these, some of your marriages are marriages, that they are a failure. They just haven't ended in divorce, at least not yet. That, that you're essentially people who pay taxes together. You, you're willing to pay the, the, the tax uh, penalty for being married. But beyond that, there's not much more to what you would call a marriage. Your marriage is a failure, and regardless of whether or not you're still married. So I don't, I don't know. I, I estimate 75 to 85% of marriages in America are failures. I mean, I've got, it's got to be something like that. I don't know what the exact number is that either end in divorce or that they're just subsisting. But according to Dr. Wright, here's what's wild. People who, so active, conservative, people who fit this heading, according to his study, active, conservative Protestants who nominally are involved in church, meaning not very, right? I think Barna discovered recently that the average, that people think of themselves as regular church attenders if they attend one Sunday in six, um, that they still consider themselves regular church attenders. So that's, that's nominally um, that means you're not very involved. It's funny how I've been the pastor. I've been there seven years now. I met someone last year who told me they were a member of that church when they met me outside of the church. Like they didn't know who I was. I've been on stage almost every Sunday for seven years. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm, I remember that, you know, church down there, First Baptist South Campus. I was like, well, that's great. First of all, it's, it's now South Spring Baptist Church, has been for a couple of years, and I'm the pastor. So it's... So this would be a nominally involved Christian Protestant, right? So people who are nominally involved in the Christian life, but who claim to be born-again Christian active conservative Protestants, are 20% more likely to be divorced than secular people are. How about that? But active Christian, active Protestant conservative Christians who are engaged in church and in the Christian life, who attend, who go to seminars, who go on mission trips, who, in, who invest, who teach Sunday school classes and all that kind of stuff, are 38% less likely to get divorced. So it turns out it's not what you claim, and according to the research, the guy said, nothing anyone claims has any effect on their divorce rates. But what they do, shock, has a huge effect on their divorce rates. The only factor that caused a group of people to stand out in his research was whether they were actively involved in church, which gave them an almost 40% improvement over the others. That is massive. What it means is we have essentially found the solution to the marriage problems in the United States. If, if we can actually engage in this... Um, Here's, the, here's the, the part of the conclusion. Whether young or old, male or female, low income or not, those who said they were more religious reported higher average levels of commitment to their partners, higher levels of marriage satisfaction, less thinking and talking about divorce, and lower levels of negative interaction. These patterns held true when controlled for, unimportant, for important variables such as income, education, age, and even first marriage. What happens is the problem that we're dealing with is we have a difference between our orthodoxy, what we believe, and our orthopraxy, what we do. And this is what is created. So tonight is largely going to be me laying down the groundworks for what truths 
we're missing and have been missing, and then tomorrow will be much more practically oriented. So I'm going to do a little bit of Apostle Paul tonight, a little bit of Apostle Peter tomorrow, um, and the difference between them, of course, is that Peter was married, Paul was not. And so it, Peter's talking about marriage is much more practical than Paul's. Paul's is much more theological. But I think there's a significant issue as we jump into this and, and begin to apply it. Here is what I consider the most practical advice about marriage, and it's not to drop names, but it's Jesus Christ. So Matthew 6, 19-21, and then he, he semi-repeats himself in Luke 12. But Matthew 6, 19-21, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves not break in and steal. Here's the verse. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The sister passage in Luke 12, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with treasure in heavens that do not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Verse 34, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now this is a powerful passage when it comes to marriage. Jesus is specifically talking about living out the kingdom life, peripateo, to walk in, to live this out. He's specifically talking about that. But since this is a marriage conference, I want to take this truth, this axiom, this statement of this is just the way it is, and I want to apply it to our marriages. And here's what's wild. So here's the statement I would tell you. If you're in a boring marriage, that means you're a boring person. It doesn't mean you're married to a boring person. It means you are a boring person. That's what this passage teaches. That where your treasure is, your heart will follow. Now, this is not a nice thing to say about us. This is, this is not kind. This is harsh language. You understand that Oprah would say the opposite. That any postmodern thinker would say, no, no, wherever your heart is, surely your treasure will follow that. And Jesus is slapping these people in the face and saying, that's not how it works. Sadly, you are such a mercenary race of beings... That wherever you put your time and your intentionality and your strategy and your education and your money, your heart's going to follow that. So here's what's wild. We get to decide with 100% certainty where our hearts go, according to Jesus here. It follows the money. It follows our energy. It follows our treasure. Wherever we invest something, that's where our heart goes. So, just, just an experience today. If you've not gotten to experience this, not, not to flood him with requests, but... So, Keith gave us a tour at uh, NASA today. And so, I grew up with a, prof- a father who's a professor, forestry professor, parks and recreation. So, I was telling these guys, like, I've, I've gotten to... Over my whole life, we go to parks around the country, and my dad always had students who were there, and so we would get the tour that other people don't get. So we would get the, the, the non-tour tour, right? The one other people don't get to have. And so, and so um, Keith spent decades working on the shuttles and doing work on the shuttles. So what you want to experience is what I got to experience, which was climbing up the little ladder into the cockpit of the shuttle mock-up with Keith. And you can spend 10 or 15 minutes up there as he embraced his first love, right? Or maybe second behind Jesus, right? That's a, but this is a, just, just Keith talking about this. I mean, just, just the, the artistry of it, the care of it, the whatever. Getting to engage. This is a man who has invested 
thousands of hours in this, and you can see that his heart has followed that investment. And by the way, when you invest too much in worldly stuff, you're going to get your heart broken because they cancel the shuttle project, right? <laughs> and so even, just to, even to hear almost a little bit of grief in as he talked through, like that's a, that's a powerful thing when you get to embrace with sweat someone loves, where they have invested their treasure. When you get to see them engage with that is, is really neat. That's, Jesus is here talking a bigger picture about the whole kingdom, but the principle is we need to make sure we're investing in the things we want our heart to follow. And so when someone comes into a counseling office and says, hey, uh, I've fallen out of love with my wife. Well, first of all, let me just tell you, all the therapists are just, we're just shocked and stunned, right, when that happens. Like, well, right, you're here. Right? We don't have many people who show up in the office and go like, man, we're just crazy about each other. That's right. So we thought we'd spend 150 bucks and just come hang out with, right, spending 150 here to avoid spending 450 with the attorney. That's, that's good logic. But the, how do we, how do we then, so what's amazing is a lot of times, especially if it's just one spouse comes in and wants to engage with this, one of the things I like to do with them is say, I'll tell you what, why don't you, why don't you text your wife and pick a date, a weekend, four or five months from now, maybe three months from now, and tell her not to plan anything that weekend. And then you and I are going to plan a weekend for her. You're going to take her away for a weekend, we're going to plan that together. But you don't share any of this with her. All she has to do is mark it off. So we'll spend six hours, seven hours, planning this weekend, just in my office and then homework that he has outside. Guess what happens about, how, guess how he begins to feel about his wife as he plans this weekend away that she knows nothing about. What begins to happen is that you see his heart begin to grow more open to her. It's just this principle in action. He's now thinking about her. He's strategizing about her. One of the disciplines I think that is vitally important for marriage is that you are always intentionally developing, planning, thinking, investing in your spouse. I try to always have a long-term project going. So we just celebrated 25th. Um, there was a project that I thought would be done by 25th. It's now looking more like 30th when, when she'll finally get to experience it and she doesn't know what it is. But the, um, that's something I work on. For each of these things, like I, I spent, I'm old enough that... Uh, and most of our photographs were not digital. And so I created this massive, for our 20th, I created this massive photo album that, that walked through the 20 years of our marriage and, and courtship. And it took many, many, many hours. So I'm up there, I'm, up, I'm in a different part of our house, sneaking, creating this thing online, falling more in love with my wife, who doesn't even know I'm doing it. So for her, it's a few hours of enjoyment as I give her this gift and she gets to enjoy it. For me, it was dozens of hours, maybe hundreds of hours of, of investing in her, and my heart, of course, follows. That's how that works. This is one of the most practical teachings that you can apply. So this shows us, the, the, so combine these two ideas. What is it that the people who invest in church and who invest in, in the ministry of the gospel and that kind of stuff, what is it that they get? Here's what they get. They get where to invest their lives. And when you invest your lives, when you're good at finding things that are treasure to invest in, when you're good at investment, then those things, your heart follows those things, and that's going to include the marriage that God gave you. So if you invest in that person and you invest in that marriage, that's what, these, that's what we are supposed to get. One of the things that Jesus teaches us is where to spend our lives. 
When it comes to marriage, this principle is, are we investing? What's shocking to me is how, and this, guys, sorry, is how many men have been married more than three or four years and have never read a marriage book. Have never, they've gone to hundreds of hours of CEUs for their career by then. I mean, they are a professional whatever, right? But they think that they need to do no preparation to be a father or a husband. And the good news is you own lots of marriage books. Um, your wife has bought them, <laughs> read them, highlighted them, dog-eared them, given them to you for Father's Day, and they're on a shelf somewhere in your house. They can be intimidating. Now, they're also a lot of those, just so you also will warn you, a lot of the marriage books in Christian world, especially the older ones, are just, they're terrible. And so you have to be very careful. I do recommend a few. So I do recommend Feldon's books. Um, I think I have a very high opinion of those. Um, Gottman's material is, is well-founded. Feldon's gets research and faith. Um, Gottman's has a lot of research and some faith. Um, and then if you just want philosophy or theology of marriage, Chan's new book is a great, you know, not very practical, but it's dead on when it comes to the theology of it. Um, but uh, a lot of the older books are actually kind of, honestly, kind of dangerous because they weren't very well based on theology or scripture, and they were not at all based on research. And so they, some of them are pretty awful. But um, we can talk about that at Q&A later or something like that. But I just want to tell you, like, this is, we have to invest in this. We have to be good at this. It's the hardest thing we do, and yet most people list it as the most important part of their life outside of their relationship to God. And yet so little energy, time, money is invested intentionally in this. So... Um, when, when Trent and I talked, I said, I think I want to focus in on the idea of an, of an intentional marriage. Like, what are you doing with this marriage? How are you investing in what do you, he, he liked that idea. So how, let, me, let me talk with you a little bit about, especially, how many, how many of my, uh, how many of you guys are, guys and girls are engineers? Like, do we have a bunch of engineers since I'm dealing with this close to NASA? Uh, yeah, are engineers. Okay, about, about a dozen maybe, which is, you know, Ten times probably the national average in just any given population. Um, so, so here we have the idea of you have to know what something is for. Um, if you don't know what something is for, why, why it needs to exist, it's going to be really tough. Um, my daughter, you, you guys will appreciate, my daughter just had one of those really tough, in, unjust moments at school where they had her, she's in physics, so they had her build a bridge, you know, the bridge out of balsa, balsa wood or whatever. Everybody's done this who's ever taken physics for I don't know, since probably Archimedes. Like it's been, they've been doing it for a long time. And so nowadays you get to go on YouTube and just see how to build one. That's just nice. But so the teacher made a mistake and said the whole thing had to be two grams, which of course is not realistic. It's more than one tiny piece of balsa wood. And so, or less than that. And so they, the teacher said, listen, don't worry about the weight. The, the mass doesn't matter. Just build it with the materials I gave you. So my daughter just was like, well, great. If, that's, if the only task now is to support the weight and be a certain shape, and I can use limitless resources as long as it's what you gave me. So she used up all kinds of wood and had struts and additions and all kinds of stuff. And she gets and the teacher doctored five points for the mass. When the teacher said that the mass didn't matter. So my daughter dealt with the injustice of like, wait, that doesn't make any, you said this. So here's the deal. We are, we are abusing marriage in our culture because we don't know what marriage is for. The marriage, we're, marriage isn't failing us. We are failing marriage as God designed it. So I want to I share with you some of this concept. And this is kind of what I want to lay out tonight. First thing is this idea. 
So, for example, you don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but in, in Jeremiah 3, 6-9, listen to this. So, the Lord said to me in the days of the king of Josiah, <coughs> Have you seen what she did? That faithless one, Israel, how she went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and there played the whore? Um, I get to do an Israel tour every other year. I take, my, take people to church to Israel. And when we stop, we stop at the big, there'll be big spreading terebinth tree or an oak tree. And in the, in the Old Testament, you found two populations under the terebinth tree where it's nice and shady and there's breeze and that kind of stuff. It's either prophets or prostitutes. And all through Scripture, like that's a good place to do business whether you're a prophet or a prostitute, apparently. So that's what he's talking about here. You go up on the high places where they worship the foreign gods in immoral ways and then under the, so. Um, how she went up on every hill and on every green tree and there played the whore. And I thought, after she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return. Her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And she saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a degree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear this. And she too went and played the whore because she took um, her prostitution lightly. She polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree meaning worshiping. So the language here, obviously this is not literally adultery. What are the people of Israel doing? It's, it's participation is encouraged. Worshiping other gods, right? They're worshiping, they're worshiping idols or other gods. What does God call that here? Adultery. Not idolatry. Adultery. This is a common theme throughout the prophets especially Jeremiah and Isaiah, I mean, and Ezekiel. Ezekiel 23.3, for they have committed adultery, and blood is on their hands. With their idols they have committed adultery, and they have even offered up to them for food the children whom they have borne to me. That's intriguing. Many of you know the story of Hosea, or at least you've read the fictionalized version of it, where you have a prophet who God calls to marry a prostitute, who then leaves him, and he goes by, back and buys her out of prostitution a second time. And in that imagery, God is Hosea, and the prostitute is his people. Not, again, not a very flattering analogy there, but that was, that's the idea. Fast forward to the New Testament. All through the book of John, especially the book of John, but multiple places, the church is referred to as the bride of Christ, Right? Then you get to this famous passage that we're going to talk about in a second that, that the Apostle Paul does in Ephesians 5 where he, he, he does this whole long 10 verses or so on marriage. And at the end of that he says, now this is a great mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. Well, he has not been talking about Christ in the church. He's been talking about marriage. So the, in order for Paul to not be a liar, what that means is to talk about marriage is to talk about Christ in the church. In other words, here's the deal. This is what Scripture reveals to us, is that the purpose of marriage fundamentally appears to be this, to be a living parable of God's relationship to His people. That God wanted a living parable of His relationship to His people, so He designed, ordained, and instituted in the garden marriage. This predates Israel. It predates the law. It predates government. It predates the church. It is, a, it is a, an institution that God puts in place to say, this is between me and two people because it's meant to be a living parable that people look at a husband and a wife and they say, I guess maybe God loves me the way he loves her. I guess maybe God loves me the way she loves him. That's the intention of it, is to be a living parable of God's love for his people. Okay, so here's what's interesting 
Uh, my brain doesn't work like normal people's brain. I learned that a long time ago. And so one of my big questions early on was, why are there two genders? That's ironic now. But um, why are there two genders? And by two genders, by the way, I'll start using the terminology correctly. I'm not going to use the word gender. I'm going to use the word sex. Why are there two sexes? Um, why is that? Shouldn't it be three? I mean, triune, the triune God, it seems like when he created recapitulating himself, he would have had there be three and, and I think probably you, you would quickly jump to the conclusion like God represents the third person in the marriage. So that would be, there's, there's kind of three. There's man, woman, and God in, in marriage. So maybe, maybe that's what's being talked about there. I, I don't know. But that's what I wondered about. And then, why did he make us so different from one another? I mean, that was, that was like just me. He didn't have to do it that way. I mean, he could have made men and women. I mean, we are dramatically different from one another. And the more we learn about biology, uh, of the biology of sex, the more we learn how different we are from each other. And, and we get to watch, kind of horrified, as our nation right now goes through all kinds of experiments to see whether or not men and women are different from, males and females are different from each other. So as we, as we watch this going on and realizing there are real differences, why did he do that? I mean, that makes it hard. It's really tough sometimes, right? Why is that? Well, here's what struck me. So if God's making a, trying to create a living parable of his love for his people, the question then would become, what best exemplifies God's love for his people? So throughout human history, what moment best portrays God's love for his people? What do you think? Wow. Is this scary or something? Like... <laughs> Does Trent like yell at you if you if they say something to church? Do you yell or like throw things? Don't be wrong about this with your husband and wife. Like, shh, don't say anything. What moment? The cross, which was an act of sacrifice. Now, when you want to have fun, sometimes wrap your brain around the thought of a God who sacrifices Himself. That makes no sense. But a God who sacrifices Himself. So what God would have had to, if God wants to create a living parable of his love for his people, what is he going to have to hardwire into the institution that is meant to represent, to meant to be a parable of his love for his people? What's he going to have to hardwire into that? Sacrifice. No better way than to have men and women marry each other. Because sacrifice is going to be a constant expression of that type of relationship. I did a, a wedding just last week, and, and I always say in the wedding, and this, this gets laughs every time, uh, if you've been married more than a couple of years, you already have discovered that marriage is an awful way to get your needs and wants met. <laughs> like, it, is, it really is pretty terrible at that. It's as if it was designed to be something where you got to spend the rest of your life sacrificing your needs and wants for somebody else's needs and wants. Almost like God set it up that way, right? Because He did. Because he wants to show his love for his people through the way we love each other. And that's pictured beautifully through sacrifice. He wants us to sacrifice for each other. And when people see that, it's not impressive, as Jesus says, it's not impressive to love someone who loves you well. What's impressive is when you can love someone who loves you poorly. Or who can't love you back. That's, that's impressive. to be. That's a testimony. And, and we all know that we all love poorly. Right? That's a confession of the church. It should be like a, 
uh, almost in every Sunday confession, the first thing we need to do is acknowledge the fact that we all love poorly. We're all terrible at this. It's, it's why God didn't allow us to read each other's thoughts. Because we would, it would be a nightmare train wreck all the time. We, we can't even look like we're loving well, and we're still not, right? It's, it's, we're just we're flawed and frailed in that way. So we get this Ephesians passage, and I'm going to talk through this Ephesians passage as, as a, a focus tonight. Um, Ephesians 5, um, in fact, most of Ephesians, if you, if you read through it, and I'm, I'm sure you guys know this, so I, I'm, I have to work through this because you're in, you're in a church where Scripture is, is taught and taught well. Um, I'm not used to that type of audience. Um, and so, but, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of do a background here, which, which many of you may know this. But um, so, you know, the Bible is not a textbook. It's also not a magic book. <laughs> um, it doesn't chase away evil spirits because you own one. That doesn't, that doesn't do you any good. Um, that's, that's a jack-o'-lantern. You're thinking Halloween. Um, it's the Bible. Um, the Bible is, is, but it's also not a textbook. And so you, you have to understand it in the literature that it's in and, and what's being written and who's writing it and that kind of stuff. And so I often will joke about, like, if I come home and Ginger hasn't written a love poem for me, and, and it's, it's stuck on the fridge, this love poem is stuck on the fridge, and I go, I go and it says, it says, um, bread and coffee, and milk, eggs, sandwich meat. And I'm going, what, is, what does this say about her love for me? What is the... She appreciates that I, that I make money for her. Like the, That's the bread. This, she, she's talking about the... Okay, so very quickly I'm going to reach all kind of absurd conclusions, right? Because I'm not reading this as the right form of speech, the right, not the right type of literature. This is not a love letter, it's a grocery list, right? So if I read it as something that it isn't, I'm going to get in big trouble. And that's true of Scripture, you can't do that. And so when you get to, when you get to Ephesians, most of Paul's letters, by the way, I think Paul is angry. Um, I, don't, I think we read them because, we, we, because it's the Bible, right? So it's sweet and gentle. Well, it's not. I mean, you read Galatians and, and Paul is just pacing and pounding. I don't know who his scribe was for Galatians. I don't, know if we, I don't remember if we know that. But I mean, I, th- I think he's so mad, he's maybe, maybe breaking things while he's, he's verbalizing to the scribe, write this to the Galatians. Um, Corinthians kind of is hit and miss, but Corinthians is like he's speaking to the, to the little bus, right? He's, this is the, these are the handicapped people. Like, the, you guys aren't getting this at all. Like, what could you possibly be thinking when it comes to the, like, how could you, what, what you're so off on this? How do you not get this yet? How are you not, wait, some of, some of you are, are drunk and others of you are, are dying for lack of food and you're meeting together at church under those conditions? What? Like, it's just like, why, how are you not getting it? That's, that's how Corinthians reads. There's this frustration like, I'm about to give up on you people. What's wrong with you? Well, Ephesians reads like a hug. It's, it's Paul's big warm hug to the Ephesians. Um, it, this is, so what we get in Ephesians is we kind of get Christianity 2.0. That, okay, you guys are getting the basics. Now let's, let's step it up. What's next? So that's why, that's why we all love Ephesians so much. Because I think Paul's in a good mood when he's writing it. And the Spirit is speaking this warm love to the people who are getting it. Which is a little scary when you consider the, church, the letter to the church of Ephesus in Revelation. Um, I don't know how to connect those two. It's a little scary to me. But, but here we have, so we get this all through. That it's very much so this key concept of walking, peripatia, to walk according to the faith. Right? And so it's all through the book of Ephesians. Well, you get, especially you get to Ephesians 3, there starts being all this very practical, like, no, no, it looks like this to be a Christian. And then you get to Ephesians 5, and it is just straight. Okay, now, here's a list of do's and don'ts. 
Here's some behaviors. And so just at the beginning, like Ephesians, Ephesians 5, um, Therefore be imitators as God, of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You go all the way down through this chapter. You get down to verse 15 again. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. During this, you get instructions like this. Imitate God. Walk in love. Avoid the reputation of immorality. Avoid impurity. Avoid greed. Avoid filthiness. Avoid flippancy and coarse jokes. Give thanks. Be wise in your use of the time. Don't be drunk. Be filled with the Spirit. And in 521, let everyone submit to one another. So Christianity, the church, is supposed to be the mutual submission club. No, no, you. No, no, you. And that's what we're all supposed to be doing. It doesn't always work out that way. But that's the way it's supposed to look. Christianity is the mutual submission relationship. And marriage being the ultimate expression of the Christian relationship is supposed to look like mutual submission. In verse 22, you get this statement, Wives to your husbands and to the Lord. The word submit, Hupotasso uh, is not even in that passage, not even in that verse. It's the, past, the verse before. Let everyone submit one to another. Wives to your husbands as to the Lord. Now we've, we've so damaged the word submit in our culture. It's heartbreaking because it's the right word to take my mission and make my mission subordinate to your mission. But it's an active concept. It's not a passive. It's not capitulation. Submit, submit to, in this context does not mean like, fine, whatever you want. I often will say, and by the way, this will be the first one of these. I, as a therapist, so probably tomorrow in the second talk, I will, I will, um, we will greatly invest part of that conversation talking about sex. Um, because I feel like sex is one of the things, the misunderstandings about sex is really messing up Christian marriages in a lot of ways. Um, God intended it to be this awesome glue that gave it the advantage. It's, it's meant to be the, the head start over all other relationships. It's, it's the advantage over all other relationships. And yet most of our Christian marriages, I assume, many, many, many of our Christian marriages, it's the main source of trouble and, and conflict and heartbreak, which is obviously not what God intended, so we must be doing something wrong. We'll talk about that tomorrow morning, um, in the afternoon. Um, but... Um, in this situation, so imagine the idea of submitting means probably more we would use the word like devoting. Um, what we would say now, something like that. To make your mission my mission. And so very often you will hear submission taught, unfortunately, as like, well, if my husband wants to seduce me, I should let him. Right? That would be to submit. No, that's the English concept of Submit. This concept of submit here is more like, if I know my husband wants to seduce me, I should seduce him first. It's a, I, that's his mission. His goal is to get me into bed. So I need to turn his mission into my mission, and I need to get him into bed. You see the distinction? It's funny how in marriage, I could use any number of different analogies, but it's funny how often in marriage, sex is the one that makes it most clear um, that for us. It's like, that's, that's the idea is to go, that's, what, that's the word being used here. And we should, the idea that Paul uses here is to submit, to submit that wife, to submit to the husband as though he was God's agent in her life. So it's, it's like you, the, the sergeant submits to the lieutenant as if the lieutenant was giving orders from the colonel, which is exactly what he's doing, supposed to be doing. But, but if you suspect the lieutenant may not be, it's still not your job to not listen to that. Like, that's the idea here. Now, this is a great setup that Paul does. He creates this great analogy, and uh, it's beautiful the way he does this, when he sets this up. 
So wives to your husbands as to the Lord. Everyone's supposed to submit to one another, including husbands to wives. Wives are supposed to submit to their husbands as the Lord. Now again, that word submit, we've so damaged it, and I'm, so I'm going to now start using the word devote instead. Because some of you are triggered emotionally by the word submit. And rightfully so, because it's been so abused. Um, and so to devote yourself to the husband as to the Lord. So that's the idea. You create this analogy. So you have husband, wife, and the, the relationship, the husband is Lord, and wife is what? Church. Good. And so this is the picture that Paul creates in this, in this little analogy that he does. And so husbands love your wives as Christ loves the church. So that's the analogy. Now, um, so he creates this relationship. He also does head and body, the same thing. Head, the husband is Lord. It might be better to draw it that way. This doesn't mean the husband is the Lord. In the analogy, he represents the Lord. Head, body. Which again works because Christ is the head of the church. So this, this which is one of Paul's favorite analogies, he uses a lot. Um, and so that's that's the picture created. Now here's what's wild. Isn't it odd that Paul starts with wives? They're like, let everyone submit to one another. Wives to your husbands as to the Lord. I have no idea. It'll be great when we get to take a seminar on the book of Ephesians from Paul someday. But but when that until then, we have to guess at why he started with the wives. Does it have to do with the church of Ephesus and an issue going on there? We don't know. I think one possible example, one possible reason is because, God, is because Paul is throwing that out as a hook for the husbands. And so that the husbands hear that and they go, yeah, yeah, this is a good analogy. I like this analogy. This analogy where I'm kind of like God and she's kind of like the church. That would work. Because then Paul springs the trap. So he goes, wives, to your husbands as to the Lord. And husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So remember that whole crucifixion thing? Remember that whole being beaten to death and then nailed to something thing? It's really hard as a therapist when I have a Christian husband whining about his imperfect wife. Because I always just want to pull out a copy of The Passion and just show like the beating scene. Like, let's, let's just enjoy this together for a minute. Let's watch this. <laughs> so do you think you've gone this far yet? No? Then you're not obeying Scripture yet. Like, you're not following through with what God has called you to do yet. This is on purpose. So is it hard to follow Jesus when you consider what He has done for us? I mean, when you consider what he's done, that he's a shepherd, and that's, we just talked through John 10, this passage in John 10. John 10, I, I, I talked through a little section of it as though Jesus was doing a sales job. And I think maybe he partially is. Listen, you need to trade up shepherds. All you've got are these Pharisees, or even Pharisees, all you've got are each other. You need to trade up shepherds. Listen, you could keep these shepherds, but they're hirelings and worse, thieves. At worst, they're here to hurt you and destroy you. At best, they're just here until there's a problem and then they're going to bail on you. So what you need is a shepherd who loves you, is willing to die for you, and is powerful enough to take back up his life. That's what you really want. But you want is someone who loves you enough to die for you and powerful enough to live again afterwards. That's what you want. He's saying, I'm that shepherd. You need to trade up. You need to, you need to leave the flock you're in and come to mine. 
You need to follow me instead. When I walk through singing and making noise, you need to get up and follow me to my words. That's the example that he's, he's using. That's what we need. When you think of Christ in those terms, yes, is it going to cost you? Yeah, everything. But, but it's, it's investing in the right thing. I think when we husband, as husbands, when we're following that example, surely it's going to be easier to follow us if our wives have a comprehension that we are carefully trying to follow the person above us. Like that makes it a lot easier to follow us. You, you may not even agree. I mean, there's going to be problems and conflict. There, there just is because, I mean, we're humans. Have you met us? I mean, we're not cool. I mean, it's a, we're hard people to get along with. We're hard to get along with ourselves and somehow we think it's going to be easy to get along with each other. Man, that's, yeah, welcome to that world. Here's, the, you know, here's what stood out to me one time when I was teaching through this. So, here's the if-then statement. If what? Comma. Then husbands should love their wives. What's the blank that Paul creates in Ephesians 5? If what? I should love Ginger. What do you think? What's the if-then statement? A little harder. And y'all are quiet on the easy ones. So I'm expecting you to be really, really quiet here. No one's going to be willing to risk. I know. <laughs> you know the answer, right? <laughs> if what? Should Christ, should, should the husband love his wife and sacrifice for her? If you look in this passage, so husbands should love their wives as what? As Christ loves the church. So, if Christ loves the church, then I should love my wife and sacrifice for her. Right? Make sense? Right. This is a testimony. When I love my wife, it is a testimony, like a witness in a courtroom, that Christ loves the church. I'm convinced the reason that we lose so many kids when they go off to college from the church is not because of liberal professors. It's not because of alcohol and drugs. It is because their parents' marriage stinks. And we have created no witness for the relationship between Christ and the church in our homes. That the children see how badly we treat each other. They see how poorly we love each other. They see how arrogantly and pridefully we disregard God's teaching when it comes to marriage. And they go... Yeah, no thanks. And they follow until another opportunity opens itself up, and college is sometimes the first time that opportunity shows up, and they go, oh, well, there's a different worldview. Maybe it's better than the one my parents modeled for me all those years. It's why some of you went through a stage of walking away from the church is because you're, if you go back, it's because your parents' marriage stunk. It's, it's amazing to me. Of course it is, because listen, it works both ways. So I am giving a living parable of God's love for His church, and the people who see it most close to me, my wife, I mean, I can fake it for you, right? I've only got a few hours with you. I can even fake it for my church. I could fake it for them if I really needed to. I mean, eventually you'd, they'd see it. But short term, for, for a while, I could fake it. I can't fake it with Ginger. That's why it's hard to pray with her. Have you guys noticed that? How much harder it is to pray with your wife? I mean, you could like call me up in front of five million promise keepers and be like, would you open in prayer? I'd be like, yeah. 
every night with my wife, I'm try, trying to talk myself out of it all the time. I'm convinced that's because we have an enemy who doesn't care if I pray in front of 50,000 promise keepers, but he knows the power of praying with my wife. And I'm sitting here praying to my wife with someone who knows how arrogant I've been earlier that day or how unkind or impatient I was just 45 minutes ago. And I feel like a hypocrite to pray with her, mostly because I'm a hypocrite. Like, that's, that's mainly why I feel like one sometimes. And so, for her, for, like, that's harder. And so, I'm, sometimes you, like, before you pray, you go, like, hey, are we okay? <laughs> like, before I pray, like, I need to... It, it creates that moment. But it's one thing we know to do. It's amazing how often in counseling, wives, Christian wives... Now, I'm going to call you out here in a second, too. But Christian wives will say, I wish my husband would lead me spiritually. And the husband goes, like, I don't know what to do. How to lead her spiritually? Like, what's one thing you know you ought to do? to lead your wife spiritually. And all of them say, like, well, I guess, I mean, we could pray together. Like, good. Well, then do that. Like, isn't it amazing? People come to counseling all the time for tools. That always cracks me up. Well, we just need to get tools. I'm like, right, because you don't know how to do this, right? So John Gottman's research, correct me on this if I get this wrong, Josh. It turns out that John Gottman did all this tons of research, and he discovered there's a really huge secret to being well married. You want to hear the really huge secret? It turns out it's this. Ready? You need to be nice to your spouse. <laughs> I know, right? Who knew? Like it's a... And in fact, if you're nice, five times as often as you're not nice, so it doesn't matter if you're not nice, you just have to be all just nice, five times as often as you're not nice, you're almost certainly in a good marriage. Yeah. It's too bad Jesus didn't comment on any of this stuff, right? 2,000 years ago. How about, how about if you be a good neighbor? I have a marriage seminar that I do called Won't You Be My Neighbor? And what I, all I do is, I'll mention a couple of them probably tomorrow. I just take a few of the neighboring passages, like how to be a good neighbor, and I go like, what if you did this with your wife? As C.S. Lewis pointed out in Screw Tape Letters, it's, it's easy to love a starving kid in Africa, right? You, you don't have to deal with them. They're probably a brat too, just like your kids are. They probably drive, right? If you had to actually love them and live with them, they drive you crazy too, but you don't have to. They're thousands of miles away. It's easy to love them. In the in screw tape letters, the, the, the demon screw tape says what he wants his, to teach his, his student to do is to take the virtues, the positive, godly traits in the man and spread those as far out as possible. So he's good at loving people that he has no relationship with. And then bring his vices, his impatience, his arrogance, his pride, his, his anger, and bring those in as closely as possible. Because the witness to the starving kid in Africa, fine if that's loving, just make sure his witness to his wife and kids is bad. And that's, that's so often where we are. We don't even think about it in those terms. And so that's, this, this works that way. If I am not loving to Ginger, what is my testimony? Christ doesn't love the church. That's my testimony. If Ginger does not devote herself to me, does not turn my mission into her mission, her testimony to our kids first, to our neighbors, to our friends, to our church, is that the church doesn't follow Christ either. That's the testimony. So it works both ways. So when we live this out well, it's a powerful... In fact... In a world that probably within a few generations, maybe within just a few years, just a few presidencies, we won't be allowed to proselytize openly in the United States. 
Um, just like in Israel and France and other places. I don't know if you know, like in France, you can't wear religious symbols in public buildings anymore. Um, you cannot openly proselytize in France anymore. Well, that's coming here. It will be considered hate speech to proselyte, to try to convince someone to be like you uh, religiously. And so that will probably come here. Well, then what's going to be left of a testimony? Which is fine because none of us do that anyway, right? It's not like, none of us are shared the gospel anyway. So it's like, but <laughs> what will be the powerful testimony? What is the most powerful testimony now? Probably your marriage. Certainly your family. This is the most powerful testimony we have. If our marriages and churches rocked, I don't think we could build buildings fast enough. Because the world knows something. They know something's wrong with marriage. Now again, they're like the, the town idiot who keeps trying to fix it and make it do something it's never going to do over and over and over again a thousand different ways. It's the very definition of insanity. Let's try this, let's try this, let's try this, let's try this. It's the same thing, all these different ways, and it's not ever going to work. But if our marriage is rocked, one, I think we would lose almost no kids. All of them would stay in church all the way through. Um, that's my opinion. And then they would come back and they would be bringing people with them. If people on the outside, do you know that there was a study done a few years ago? I don't remember how long ago now. Um, I think it was a Barna one, but it may not have been. When they asked people, if you had marriage problems or parenting problems, where would you go? And church did not make the top 100 on either of those lists. I don't go to church to find out about that kind of Church is about Jesus' stuff. It's not about practical life. Man, why would they listen to us? Our marriages stink. They had to be laughing when, when, church, when the church rose up and said, like, no, no, Wait, God defines marriage. This is what marriage is all about. I mean, if you were not part of the church, would you have listened to us? Our divorce rates in our churches. Again, now, what, we just, what you just learned was apparently not the case for active people. People living the gospel life. That's a huge protection against divorce. But they look at us and they see how bad our marriages are. Why would they listen to us? Oh, right, because you guys get marriage. Got it. Of course they don't listen to us. This is a huge opportunity for us. The fact that you're here is a huge opportunity. This isn't about loving your spouse because they are awesome. I mean, mine happens to be awesome, but that's not what this is about. Notice, my wife has nothing to do with the if-then statement. Nothing. The way Paul set it up, I love my wife if Christ loves the church, period. What's my wife's role in that? Nothing except to receive being loved. It's no way to pick. It's amazing how often I will say, what's the if-then statement? If what, I should love my wife. And the answer is if she submits to you. No, no, Paul worked hard to make sure that wasn't the if-then statement. Well, you should submit to him if he loves you well. No, that's not what it says. You should submit to him. And again, you should devote yourself to him. It's kind of another word for love. Respect is what Peter says. If, if, Christ, if the church loves Christ. That's the if-then statement. Questions? Good. Um, as, as our good friend Frederick, Friedrich Nietzsche said, when someone has a why, the how is usually not a problem. Um, I hope that this so far has given you the why. That you now know what your marriage is supposed to do. Let it be a, a, let it be a purpose statement, a mission statement of your marriage. That, a young, that some young couple was going to come to you and ask you to teach them about marriage because they see how you relate to each other. Um, that was a 
that was a big moment the first time that happened with us. To have a couple we didn't know say, would you do um, premarital counseling with us because, not because you're a therapist, because we see how you treat each other in church. So that's a, that's a cool thing. I really want to encourage you to have that type of a heading. It's funny for us as men, especially how often we want to be the world-class engineer or the world-class teacher or the world-class doctor or whatever, but rarely does anyone lay out there this call. We should be a world-class husband. Like it's, it's one of my goals to be in the top maybe 10 husbands of all time. Why is that funny? I, I think it's a great goal to have. Like I, I, don't, know, I don't know how to compare, but I, I could at least be the best husband I know about. Like I could at least be watching for that, or I'd at least be like, yeah, I got you beat, I got you beat, I got you beat. Like, <laughs> at least takes away Ginger's options, right? Like, I'd leave him, but like, where would I go? <laughs> it doesn't get any better out there. Um, all right, so this, none of this should surprise us. Um, in, my, in one of my commentaries, I loved this commentary. So uh, one of the commentaries I use is a guy named Barnes Notes. And Barnes Notes, he, at the end of this passage, here's what he writes. It follows then that a husband is, n- is in no danger of loving his wife too much. That's a great line. That's why he gets to write books. Like, that a husband is in no danger of loving his wife too much because Christ doesn't love the church too much. Like, it's not possible. He loves her with everything. And it's, it's, <laughs> that's a great picture. So, um, the modern church is known for um, and defined by uh, very often the blot, the wrinkle, and the defect. In that passage in Ephesians 5, it says that he is going to present us without those things. Newsflash, we're not going to take away the blots and the wrinkles from the church. Like we, we are the blots and the wrinkles of the church, right? That's us. He is going to purify that. Again, I love the picture of, the, of God being the one who creates the identity. The beauty of the church is created by the spouse. That's, that's the idea here. That him investing in the church and sacrificing for the church is what makes her beautiful. That's what, that's what causes that. So, that's not sure. Again, none of this should be surprising. The new commandment that Jesus says, I got tricked by this when I had somebody ask, um, you know, what, how many commandments there were, and I threw out 10, and he was like, wrong, 11, because Jesus added one. Dadgummit. So, a new commandment I give you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you should also love one another. Now, this next verse we have applied in church a thousand times. You ever thought about this in regards to marriage? By this, all people will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Well, not a huge shock then that our marriage is a living parable of his love for his people and that people by our religion to the degree they see us love our spouse, especially our kids. None of that makes sense? How could that not be the case? We turn Jesus into a liar if that's not the case. So how do we invest and what do we invest in? Okay, good. Um... I'm going to spend a little time on this, a little more time on this tomorrow. Um, but so, investing in what? Here's a here's a quote from the Journal of Psychology and Theology from a long time back. This is a great. I think everyone will identify with this. We have a picture of the perfect partner, right? But we marry an imperfect person. We have two options: tear up the picture and accept the person, or tear up the person and hold fast to the picture. Many people spend their whole marriage doing that. One of the jokes in therapy 
is that, is that husbands are disappointed that their wives change. And wives are disappointed that their husbands don't. <laughs> right? Um, there's an axiom in there somehow. But of course, of course things change across time. Of course that's going to happen across time. And hopefully we grow in wisdom and in stature and in relationship with one another and with God. Hopefully we're being conformed to the image of his son all through this process. That is a great thing that marriage accomplishes. But I would go back to saying it is not the main purpose of marriage. Its main purpose is to be that living parable of God's love for his people, that people would see that. So what that means is we have to invest in each other. Now here's, the, here's one of the wildest parts of investing. So this is going to be, I want to show you guys something um, that was so cool to know, and I will build on this some tomorrow. Um, I, I think we've rescued more marriages with this little chart I'm about to show you, um, especially in mops, mothers of preschoolers. Do y'all do mops here? There's probably mop programs around here. Um, our, our therapists at Aletheia get called to speak at all the mops. We just kind of populate all the mop speaking tour in Tyler. And there's like, 20 of them in Tyler. So, so when you're a mother of a preschooler, by definition, that means your marriage is in crisis. Okay? <laughs> so this statistic is brilliant. And seeing this will rescue all kinds of things. Now, the reason I'm going to give this to you is because part of being married is knowing the other person. Um, knowing them intimately. So let me take just a second to explain that word. I'm not using that word as a euphemism for sex. <coughs> I'll say sex. I'm a therapist. Um, and so intimacy means getting to know someone else's identity, knowing what's going on internally with them. How do they process things? What's going on inside of them? Um, and so that's a, the, 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 men, the, the, the melding of the two people. Here's, how that, here's a picture, especially for guys, this is a picture that may help you. Imagine your identity as an island, and what you're doing is you are walking her through the island. So you're the guide for your wife to your identity, and you're revealing her different, to her different things. There's parts of the island you don't show to anybody. There's parts of the island you don't even show to her. That can be unhealthy and too enmeshed if, if everything, is, everything is shared with everybody. That's not, obviously, that's not healthy. But there's parts of the island that only she gets to experience, hopefully, that no one else in the world gets to experience but her. For example, the sexual part of your island. And so that's, that's, how, that's how that's supposed to work, is that that's the process. Is that you're walking her across the island to reveal to her, and, and she's doing the same for you. She's walking you, she's the guide for her identity. And you get to know her and understand how she works. Understand how he works. That's the idea. Um, it's, it's fascinating to watch, by the way, and both sexes do that very differently. It's one of the things that creates all the crisis um, for marriages, is how, how men share intimacy and how women share intimacy is so different from one another um, that it creates all the conflict, um, that, and you experience that very easily. But um, <coughs> figure out why I was talking about intimacy. I'll get back to this. It'll come to me. So the, the idea here is with, with this that you have this um, marriage satisfaction, that the how satisfied across time measurement. Um, you might remember what I was talking about intimacy. You may work that back yet. 
Josh is usually good at that. He's working on it. And second, he'll go like, oh, you were saying this. Brain works. What's that? Preschool mops and prices. Yes. Good. Now, this is, that's, now I don't need it. There's no transition, then this is right. All right, so. That's marriage satisfaction scores. Typically start relatively high. Some of you had this. The first year, you describe your marriage. You'll say like, man, our first year was just hell. Okay? Um, that almost certainly means that at least one of you was just completely unprepared to be married. Um, the concept of intimacy was not something you were willing to be engaged in at all. You had no concept for, I don't know, 90% of the time this is the man who's just radically unprepared to be married. It can mean there's a mental disorder that you're dealing with that you weren't prepared for, any number of different things. Um, but So that's the case. But for the most part, it looks like this. Somewhere around year three to five, there is this precipitous downgrade. I mean, it just starts tanking. It bottoms out somewhere around seven to ten years. That's the seven-year itch. Somewhere around there. And then it begins to climb. It climbs somewhere around 14, 15 years. It begins to drop off again. Usually bottoms out somewhere around 20 between 20 and 25. <laughs> and then it climbs. And very often continues to climb. And as couples are married, they report higher and higher and higher and higher marriage satisfaction. Even in regards to sex, by the way. Very often the people who report the highest sexual satisfaction are people who have been married 30 years and longer. Um, so, we'll talk about why that is maybe tomorrow, but... So what's the deal here? What, what is this? I mean, what is this crisis that happens right here? Children. Okay? It turns out marriage satisfaction has almost nothing to do with your spouse. It has everything to do with your kids. Let me explain why real quick. Let me explain why. And we'll build on this tomorrow. But the idea here is this. Um, again, this, the application of investing, where your treasure is, your heart will follow, applies here. So you have a certain amount of psychological energy that you wake up with. I don't, I don't, rather than a number, I'll give it a percentage, 100%, right? So you have 100% of psychological energy when you wake up in the morning. When you're first married, and, and all the things about your spouse that bug you cost psychological energy for you to tolerate those things, okay? Um, the very same things that you thought were cute early on are what bug you later, Right? The reason you thought they were cute, and, and anything that doesn't come naturally to you, anything that's not integrated into your identity, costs psychological energy. You have to spend it. So if you're, if you're an extrovert and you marry an introvert, so for example, and so the introvert wants to stay home and watch Netflix, right? That's going to cost the extrovert psychological energy to do that. Or they could go hang out with friends which is going to cost the introvert psychological energy. Make sense? We do this constantly. We're constantly making this kind of trade-off. So, so, for example, gingers, ginger, what, something that comes naturally to ginger is nesting, in particular buying baby clothes. So when something, when something is, comes naturally to you, it costs you no psychological energy, but it gains you psychological energy, Right? So it's, it's versus if something, so, so if you said at the end of it, it's an exhausting day, 
You also, when something comes naturally to you, you need a reason to not do it. You don't need a reason to do it. If it comes naturally to you, you need a reason to not do it. So I've joked with Ginger before, like, not having babies is not always a sufficient reason for her to not buy baby clothes. Like, that's a, hasn't happened in a long time, but periodically, even after we didn't have babies, she would turn up with an outfit and be like, I'm sure someone would love it. It was just so cute. I couldn't, I'd like, this. that's just a, she's a, she's babies. So, so that's a, that's a thing, right? So at the end of an exhausting day, I mean, it's just been one of those days. At the end of the day, Ginger's at zero. She has spent 100% of her psychological energy points. Okay? And Claire were to call her and say, I've got a baby shower Saturday. Would you go shopping for baby clothes with me? My wife would say, yes. That sounds, oh my gosh, that sounds awesome. This has been the worst day. Because it costs zero points of psychological energy, but let's say it's worth 20 points to go shopping for baby clothes, just the excitement and the fun. And so she would come home a little bit more bright-eyed, having 20 more points of psychological energy. She's done something that came naturally to her, and an investment. So it's not hard to make this call. Like if you're investing, if you go, if I say, hey, I will give you $40,000 in cash right now for anyone who will bring me $20,000 in cash, how many of you would do it? None of you would, because none of you have $20,000 in cash on you. Right? One of these days, someone who knows I do that as part of my talk is going to be like, I've been waiting for this, right? <laughs> it doesn't matter how good the return is if you don't have the initial investment. It doesn't make any difference. You know how we try to solve problems in our marriages, by the way? That when you go, this is really important to me, it's worth 40,000 points to me, would you be willing to invest 20,000 points, you know, 40, 20, whatever? And the person goes, oh, I, don't, I don't have the $20,000. Right? I'll give you $40,000 if you'll give me $20,000. And the person says, I don't have $20,000. So how do we try to fix that? Okay, I'll give you $50,000. But I, I, don't, I don't have the 20. Okay. 100000 I need a million. That's what we do is we tell our spouse how important this is to us. No, no, this is, this is really important to me. We go buy a Christian book that tells us this is our number one need. So the number one, this is my number one need. And you need to be meeting this need. And you need to... And the person's going, I still don't have 20 points. Like you, you, you adding a, you're solving the wrong problem. You're making it worse, not better. You follow me? We do this in marriage all the time. You're not fixing anything. You're just making the guilt go up. If, you're, if, you, get in, if you really do a good job of it, you could cause your spouse to go into debt they do that consistently, and they begin to resent you, and your marriage is on the path to death. So, not, not good strategy, right? So, <laughs> so, you have limited emotional, limited psychological resources. When you're first married, then you, you wake up with 100%, and you go to bed with 40% left over, right? So, if your spouse wants you to do something that doesn't come naturally to you, if Ginger goes, hey, you want to go shopping for baby clothes, which costs me 20 points to walk into a retail store, I go, sure. I like hanging out with you. You're fun to hang out with. It's worth 40 points to me. Cost me 20, worth 40, great deal. I've got the 20 to invest. Let's go. That'd be awesome. We fun. We flirt. It'll be great, right? <laughs> but what happens if it's the end of an exhausting day and I am tapped out and I'm just fatigued? If Josh calls me and says, hey, there's a baby shower this weekend. I need to go buy some baby clothes. Would you go with me to buy baby clothes? I'm going to say, 
No, man. No. I'm not, I'm not doing that. Man, that was nice of you to invite me, but no, right? Doesn't come naturally to me. It costs 20 points for me to do something that doesn't come naturally to me, or 10 or whatever. And by the way, if you have an anxiety disorder, add a tax, T-A-X, add a tax to everything. If you have a depressive disorder, add a tax to everything. Uh, that's, it, now it's not 20 points for you, it's 22 points or 25 points or 20. Something that would cost you zero if you have a good anxiety disorder, it would cost you zero. It's not going to cost you five. It may be that if you have a true anxiety disorder or depressive disorder, nothing costs zero. Anyway, so psychological energy, that's how that works. Now, so you're following the concept, right? So you're, you're going, yeah, we got, yeah, this marriage is easy. Man, marriage is fun. He wants to go party. Sure, I'm an introvert, but I've got points. We'll go party. She wants to hang out here at the home. Sure, we'll do that. We'll, we'll just put up with each other, tolerate each other's differences and quirks and weirdness and that kind of stuff because we have all these extra points, all the psychological energy. And then what happens? Baby born. And infants are vampires. <laughs> they just suck the psychological energy out of you. And, and they're never done. They're never satiated. They're never slaked. They're never full. It's never like the baby doesn't eventually go like, no, I'm good. <laughs> Y'all go do something. It's, it's fine. <laughs> you know, the, average, the average parent loses two hours of sleep per night during the first year of a child's life. Both, that's both parents. That's average. You have a high-needs kid or a colicky kid or something like that, or you have a spouse that doesn't help, you add that, crank that up. You done the math yet? <laughs> 720 hours of sleep lost. 30, 730 hours of sleep? 730 hours of sleep lost. 100 nights of 7 hours of sleep. Almost a third of your sleep. This just gets worse every time I do a new statistic with it, right? <laughs> so what happens is, year one, all that sleep's gone. And sleep's just one small part of it, but sleep greatly affects our psychological energy you wake up with the next day. Greatly. We know that. We, we torture people with sleep deprivation. So, so that's one. Then what happens is you go, year two, you get a little bit better. Year two's bad, but better than year one. Year three's better than year two, but... And then you have another baby. <laughs> and you go back. And year four, by the way, they're still not done stealing sleep from you at year four, and now you have a baby also, or whatever it happens to be, whatever the timing of it is. So what starts the up curve then? Somewhere around year seven, year eight, year nine, it starts an up curve. What is that? Some, for some, it's often at school, right? And somebody else gets sucked dry for a change, right? <laughs> your teacher is sucked dry by your kids, and then you get sucked dry all day, and then you get sucked, right? Yes, okay? That's why we pay you so much. Right, that's... Anyway, sorry. Too soon. The, um... what, what else is it? Because it starts sooner than that. It starts when the child is two or three years old, three or four years old. It starts improving. Why? <coughs> they become a little more independent. Yeah, you get a little more sleep. They can make their own breakfast in the morning. That's like a raise. You don't have to spoon feed them. That's a raise. That was one of my jobs was to do a lot of the spoon feeding at a certain point. By the way, I've decided I, I cannot spoon feed without mirroring. Can any of y'all not do that? Like, I can't, I can't do it. Like, I, I literally lack the capacity to do it. Like, I would get like, 
kid, I just like, anyway. Um, I'm so glad those days are done, at least for till they're grandkids, and then I can send them away. But the, that's what happens. You start gaining some psychological energy, right? Start getting back. So the, what happens here? What happens at that 15 to 17 year mark to cause it to drop back off again? Teenagers. Because they are psychological vampires, just like babies are. They, they demand a lot of psychological energy from you. They're not becoming their own people with their own preferences and their own likes. They want to stay up late. They want to go out and party. They want to stay home. They want to... And so they're becoming their own people. So now you've got to tolerate not only your spouse, who is wired differently from you, but now you have to, to tolerate the spouse and the teenager, who is also wired differently from you. And teenagers are brain damaged. I'm, I'm not going to... Um, their brain just tr- truly, the part of their brain that really makes them human is not developed. It's, it's in the process of developing... But the part of the brain that makes them an animal is fully developed. So the back part of the brain is fully developed. The front part isn't. So they are rationally like a child and emotionally like an adult. How's that for describing a teenager? So, um, and so that's, that's what you're dealing with. And so this creates this again. The, them moving out and gaining more freedom and getting on their own and starting to drive and stuff like that is what starts this upward process. Notice. So here's what this means. So application in regards to this. If you want your marriage to make it through these tough times, you will have to intentionally invest in your marriage because it will no longer come naturally. At the end of the day, when your spouse wants to engage in something (coughs) that costs you psychological energy, and then there's the things that cost all of us psychological energy, doing the dishes or doing laundry or, or doing homework with kids, or things like that, which cost all of us, no one likes that, those things. It doesn't come naturally to anybody. And so, and so that, that whole, <coughs> that idea, it's costing you more and more energy. So if, it's, if, if I know Ginger wants to go shopping for baby clothes later, I better set aside some points. I better make decisions and say no to other things so that I have some psychological energy left to do what's important to her. You start loving with less and less resources during this period of time. And by the way, we have a six-year-old, right, about here, and a 20-year-old here, and three kids in between. So, so we're like doing this. <laughs> it actually doesn't work that way. I'm totally teasing. It's a teeny, these go a long way towards helping with these, uh, if you've got both ranges, but um, it actually doesn't work this way at all, um, but the, uh, <coughs> this is a, and, and I say all this, and, and again, have five children, so it's not like I'm unaware or I think it's a bad idea. It is a worthwhile decision, but understand, if you don't schedule setting aside those points of energy, if you don't discipline yourself to do the things that bring psychological energy into your life, and here's, here's the coolest one, if you don't invest your treasure in your spouse, it will all get gobbled up by your children, your career, and your social media. All of it. There's no such thing as energy left on the table for people who have been married more than a few years. All of it goes every day. So if you can't say like, well, back here it was easy. We just kind of made it up as we went. So we went on our 20th... Um, we went to a house in Michigan that some family friends owned and for four days. Went up there without our kids for our 20th anniversary. We, we scheduled nothing just for four days, right? And we slept 
between 12 and 16 hours a day for four days. I'm, I'm not even like, even close to exaggerating. Like it was, it was wild. Have you noticed that, that when you get away with your spouse, somewhere around the second or third day, you remember why you married them? It's like, I, I actually kind of sometimes enjoy this person. Like this is, <laughs> this is fun. We can have a good time. And we, that, that, that emotion that happens is because you're, you're back to this stage where you don't have all these, all these people just grabbing hold of your psychological energy. The only way, <laughs> if you love something in today's world, if you love something, you better schedule it and you better invest your treasure there. Because if you don't, it won't happen. I mean, this is a universal experience now. Every single one of you have said some version of, you know what, I'm going to give you some of mine. I ought to be going on a walk with our teenage daughter at least once a week. And how hard would that be? Just going to walk with her once a week. And then four months go by, and we've not walked. You know, I need to go work out. I need to go work out a couple times a week at least. And then three years go by, <laughs> still not done it, right? Like this is a, we experience this. But if you put it on your calendar and you schedule it, then somehow that makes it happen. Because that's a version of investing treasure. You go, this time is set aside for this. This energy is set aside for this. This money is set aside for this. Anything that you're not intentionally investing treasure in, your heart will wander away from it. <clears throat> now, we're talking about marriage. Jesus is talking bigger picture than just marriage. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven. I do believe investing in marriage is investing in the kingdom of heaven. But notice going back all the way back to the beginning of the talk, that study, People who invest in the kingdom of heaven, it turns out their marriages last. Because when you invest in something, your heart stays there. I, I, I'm going <coughs> to say this Sunday or next Sunday probably, Ginger fundamentally does not put up with me or love me because of me. Fundamentally, she puts up with me and loves me because of her devotion to Christ. I can't earn that from her, and she can't earn that from me. How could you earn a life from somebody else? You can't do that. But Christ can call on us to do that, and we can in obedience to Him. It's an eye-opening thing when you realize you will not answer to your spouse at judgment. That's not who you answer to. It's not her ministry that I'm fulfilling. It's His ministry to her. And that's, that's a big difference. It sets us free, though. Then... Because Christ is so graceful, we can risk and go crazy. So I'm going to close with this thought this tonight. And we'll have, we should have plenty of time for Q&A tomorrow too and <coughs> whatever. I don't know what y'all's... I need to be done about 8.30, right, in just a couple minutes? I mean, the kids, people working with the kids have a certain... Nine is their time limit? Also, oh, there, there would be time maybe for some... Okay. Uh, so be thinking. There's probably some time here in a minute if you want to ask questions. Because um, I want to end on, on this, this consideration... Now, I want to, here's, here's what's cool, one of the cool things about God. So I've portrayed this through the lens of the sacrifice and the discipline and the making the decisions to invest. But now I want to show you the hedonistic side of God. So this is not a very good sales job for marriage until I add in this piece. And so Ginger and I talked about this many, many years ago, um, this, this picture. So let me ask this first. Which is better? To pay someone... 
to scratch your back or to ask someone, presuming someone who you want touching you, to pay someone to scratch your back or to ask someone to scratch your back and they scratch your back, which is better? Asking. Request is better than a purchase. Which is better? To ask for someone to scratch your back or for someone to just start scratching your back without you even asking? The second one, right? Yeah, that's like a highlight in life when you get um, So this was a, this, I think, I haven't got to study it cross-culturally, but I think probably it is a cross-cultural human experience that gifts are better than requests and requests are better than purchases, emotionally. So anytime we ever say we want anything, what we mean is we want someone to give it to us. So if I say, I want a new truck, what I mean is, I want one of you to catch the hint and just give me a truck, right? Just, just give me one, right? I'm willing to ask for it, and if necessary, I guess I'll pay for it, right? That's what we mean about everything. Everything. Follow? Now watch this. So let's say um, that my wife's favorite drink is Diet Coke with lime, Right? which they've now discontinued, Diet Coke with ginger and lime, right? Ginger and lime now. Um, <coughs> so I, I hate diet drinks. Like I, I feel like I've, I've fallen into a chemical spill every time I take a sip of one. It's just like, oh, wow, that's so foul. That's going to turn me into the joker or something like this. Just, so I can't stand them. So I like, um, although I don't ever drink it anymore because uh, I like root beer. Right? I think all different flavors of root beer are fun, all that kind of stuff. I'm a sugar addict, so that's part of that. And so Ginger does not like root beer very much. Too sweet, too harsh, too whatever. So, so when I go to the fridge, if I say I want an ice cold root beer in the fridge, what do I mean? I just want it there. I want it to magically appear there. I want someone to gift me with root beer in the fridge. Right? So if I come in and I'm talking, what's the one way to make sure that I cannot experience my root beer as a gift? What's the one way to make sure that I cannot get root beer as a gift? Buy it myself. Right? That's the one way to guarantee it. So, imagine in a marriage... Metaphorically, pick whatever, metaphorically, that my job, I only have enough money to buy one drink to put in the fridge. So if marriage is a living parable of God's love for his people, and God's love for his people is best described or defined by sacrifice, then what one drink am I going to put in the fridge? Diet Coke with lime, that's right. Which I, by the way, hate. So the minute I choose to spend, I only have enough resources, so metaphorically, happens all the time, especially when you have kids, sometimes you only have enough resources for one thing. Time, money, whatever. So what is that? I only have time and resources. So what I'm going to buy is Diet Coke with lime, and I, I put that in the fridge. Which I, what, what am I risking the minute that I do that? That that's all will be in the fridge next time I go. Right? That's what I'm risking. And, and, and let's be honest, am I risking it? No, it's guaranteed that sometimes that's going to happen, right? Guaranteed. So, but notice what happens if both of us 
are living out God's design for marriage. Those of you who are engineers, the idea of trying to design a system that only works if you don't try to make it work. This requires a God-like intellect. That only by seeking to sacrifice can I get what I actually want. Only by sacrifice. That's an incredible picture. So, so that I go to the fridge, so if I'm doing my job, and metaphorically speaking, I am making sure the fridge is stocked with Diet Coke. And if she's doing her job, and metaphorically speaking, make sure the fridge is stocked with root beer, then both of us get what we want, and we get it the way we actually want it. Then marriage becomes this like perfect storm of grace gift giving. Now take a different application. I don't like piles. In our bedroom, I don't like piles. That looks messy to me. But I don't care about made beds. Makes means nothing to me. I mean, literally, I have no idea if the bed is made or not. I could walk through. If that required to be a witness in a, in a trial, I would say, I got nothing. I have no idea if the bed was made or not. I don't see it. I don't know. Nothing. But for Ginger, a room is 60% clean if the bed is made. Something like that. So the bed is made. How often do I only have 10 or 15 minutes to work on our room? Now, if I have three hours, of course, I can do piles, I can do baskets, and I can do whatever, but if, how often do you only have like 15 minutes to invest in something like that, right? So if that's true, what should I be doing with my 15 minutes? Making the bed. That's, that's the picture. And notice how that works. God created a hedonistic opportunity in marriage, a pleasure Loving, where God says, I'm not only going to give you what you want, but I'm going to give it to you the way you want it. But only if you don't seek it. If you start seeking it, forget about it. You can't have it. By definition, you can no longer have it. Now in marriage, of course, <coughs> sometimes Ginger has to make the bed, and sometimes I have to clean up piles. And that's just, I mean, marriage is much more messy than that. But the general principle of that, consider the general principle. What, what can I be saying with the limited resources I have down here especially, how do I put my treasure in her rather than in me? What does that look like? This is what creates the marriage that God intended. This is what creates a living parable of God's love for his people. This is what keeps our kids from falling away from the church during college, in my opinion. Like, this is the idea. God knew exactly what he was doing when he created this. It's hardwired this way. All right, good. Tomorrow we'll talk a little bit more about some of these things and practicalities. So I'd love to open it up for questions, <coughs> for whatever you want to talk about. Um, if it's something that we're going to talk about tomorrow, I will just say that. I will say, like, we'll talk about that tomorrow. But And if there aren't any, we'll move along. Yes, sir? Yeah. Great question. Okay, so there's a few different things. One is... Um, you may need to be saying no to something. So even if it is at work, if you're coming home at zero, then what that means is you probably need to sit down with a supervisor or a manager or a boss and say, I'm getting home with nothing. Is there a way to adjust my job description so that I get a 30-minute break during the day, so that I have one less responsibility, so that I, that kind of thing, in order to have that. It also may mean that there's something that, that feeds that for you whether it's um, <coughs> the way you eat or when you get to exercise or something like that. So for some people, making good health habits gives them a few extra points at the end of the day. 
Um, it may be sometimes, so a lot of books will talk about, especially for men, what's called cave time, where right when a guy gets home, so he greets everybody, he gives everybody a kiss on the head, he loves everybody, and then he, you know, goes and smokes his pipe for 15 minutes, you know, whatever. Um, and I mean just a normal pipe, preferably. So that's, <laughs> this is Texas, not Colorado. So this is a, um, uh, but you go, that, so that, that you, there's a little bit of cave time, like, and a lot of times men who I work with in counseling, we will talk that on the drive home, how the drive home, how you can intentionally create a sense of cave time. So whether that's you listen to an audio book that's a great fiction novel that you can just kind of get lost in for 15 minutes or, or something like that, that you figure out a way to just to earn you enough points to get through, to push through those first few minutes or whatever. But I'll tell you a huge one. Um, I think this is one of the great cues or clues to this is that you need to make sure you have things to look forward to. So when you have something to look forward to, it's a psychological buffer. And so that if I go, oh man, I've got to meet with this group in the church again today, and I know they're just going to whine for the next hour and a half or what, but I go, but I've got a poker game with the guys tomorrow night. And what that just brings a little smile to my face. I feel the tension relax a little bit like, oh yeah, I've got that to look forward to. But I'm going away for the weekend with my wife. But one of our favorites, I read out loud to Ginger every night, most every night. Um, and so we lay in bed, and she snuggles up, and I read, and she scratches, and it is a 15 or 20-minute period of time. She has nails. I got voice. So we, um, it's a great trade. You can get it. Um, and so it's, I mean, it, it, no matter how hard a day is, I think about, man, this is really hard, but I've got this time later. Because remember, this is psychological energy. It's not, I mean, physical energy, you can be totally drained and still be okay psychologically. I mean, in fact, a lot of times for some men, it's a psychological bonus to be physically drained, to be tired out. Um, I have a whole other series that we won't have time to even touch on probably, except maybe just tiny bits in Q&A, but about rest. Um, it may even be online. I'll look and see tonight if it's online somewhere. I could send you a link. But there may be ways to create rest in your family and even rest at work to create a... Because rest is not the absence necessarily of labor. Um, you can still be doing stuff. It's the absence of what kind of labor it is. But um, <coughs> anyway, um, yeah, those are a few. Josh, you got any, anything come to mind? As far as the, yeah. There, and there may be some little things, and there may be some things what's coolest. So we'll talk about that. I'll just mention it now then since it's answered part of the question is, um, as well a part of this is, is there a energy boost that you're, wife or family can give. And so one of the, you'll hear, you'll hear sometimes pastors um, joke about like how sex starts in the kitchen, um, that by doing the dishes, like that's the, the ultimate form of foreplay is for a man to do the dishes. Um, although now it's like, you know, historically no man has ever been shot by his wife while doing the dishes. Like, so it's, anyway. Um, but so it's easy, natural, we'll talk about why, but it's natural for a man to think of that as some type of exchange. Like, oh, so if I do the dishes, then she's going to want to have sex later. Like, no, no. What you're doing is you're purchasing for her. You're taking something off of her plate so that if she wants to engage sexually, she can without going into debt. Well, the same thing works the opposite direction. There may be some things for you. I'm going to go in a little bit. Um, it's probably just the connection points. Um, but the, so there may be something for you, small little simple thing that that your wife or family or somebody else can do that reserves some points for you. 
Um, and just that's just a conversation to look at. Um, what are those type of things? Because you may not even know what they are yet. But there may be <coughs> little things like that. Um, and so this isn't some kind of weird codependent, like I've got to make everything right for him so that he's not in a, you know, terrible mood. It is, this is something small I can do that will help him have a little extra energy that, by the way, he may want to invest in me later. Um, and that's, a, that's, a, that's okay. In marriage, that type of giving is, is totally called for. So those are just some ideas to throw out there to you that you might try to figure out some of those. Um, but those of us who are bosses, like I'm a firm believer in people being able to come to us and say, when I'm leaving, I'm getting home with nothing. Like, is there, can, you, can we strategize how to help make that not happen? And a lot of times, boss, now you, you may, your boss may not be open to that at all, but it's amazing how many bosses get, get that. Um, and if you are the boss, if you're running your own business, then you have no one to blame but yourself, right? So <laughs> that was part of my move from when I did private practice the first time into a ministry setting was because I was starting to see, I was making $60 profit an hour as a therapist. And so I started being psychologically seeing like a two-hour date as costing $150. $60 for the two hours each, that's $120, plus $30 for the date, this is a $150 date. That is not healthy. And so I had to change the way I thought and psychologically do that. Vacations were just impossible for me. Like a week away, man, look at all the money. We're, I'm, I'm literally watching a meter run in my brain. That's unhealthy. Um, so I got to go work at Pine Cove where I got to be an executive. So when I came back to doing private practice work, I wrote myself an executive job description. I mean, I was the boss. So 36 weeks of time off. That seems a little high. 36 days. Uh, 36 days of time off. <laughs> Good job if you can get it. Be a senator, yeah, exactly. Senator or congressperson. Um, um, all right, so uh, good. Other questions? We'll do another one or two if you, if you have them. Yes, sir. Are there things in your habits we have that cause us to wake up with less than our Sure. Um, by, I mean, by definition, it's 100%, but what you could be. By the way, let me come back to you. Do you guys have anything to add to that last one? Ginger or Claire, do you have anything to... <laughs> Like about the coming home with no points. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you, I mean, we, we went through a phase <coughs> when I was leaving a company um, during a layoff. And I will tell you this, one of the greatest sources of psychological energy for me was the fact that, that Ginger communicated clearly to me, regularly to me, how proud she was of me in the midst of that crisis. Um, and there's, I mean, there's very little more powerful to a man than to know his wife is proud of him. It's unreal how powerful that, I mean, it's amazing to me that there's all this controversy about who has the power between the sexes. Um, I know who feels more powerful in my life um, than me or her. It feels like she has all this power in my life. And so um, that's one of them, that's huge. That, that, that There may be something in, in regards to that as well. There may be a drain that's there. Okay, so, sorry. Other questions. So, yes, absolutely. Um, lack of sleep is even one of them. Um, the type of sleep that you get is one of them, whether or not you have sleep. There's a lot of psychological and physical things. that I'm not one of those people who thinks you can divide those out. Um, I think physical, spiritual, psychological, I think they're all enmeshed in who we are. Um, that's why you can take a pill and affect your mood. Your mood affects how you express your virtues. Your virtues are 
about your relationship with the Holy Spirit, and all those, I, mean, I think they're just mashed together. I, I, I think it would be nice if we could divide them out nice and neat and neat, and everybody wants to when they do the, no, no, this is, this is not this, it's this. The, the false dichotomy movement in Christianity, I think, may drive me crazy before um, I get old enough. But <laughs> this, no, no, you need, it's, it's this, not this, and going, why? It's, clearly, it's, it's both of these. Why are you, anyway. But I, so I think there's, there's got to be a number of things like that. Um, certainly, some of the greatest are going to be resentments, bitterness, unforgiveness. Um, those are powerful um, I have a whole article, because we don't really have time to go into an article about forgiveness. Forgiveness is a concept we abuse in the church. Um, we're so quick to kind of jump to the answer of like, well, you need to forgive that person. You know, that uncle who molested you, well, you need to forgive them. Like, like that? I mean, it's just that, like, oh, okay, well, fine, then I will. Like, we don't, that's, I think the biblical picture is that there's no remission of sin without the shedding of blood. I mean, I, I think all debts are paid, biblically. It's just that for us as Christians, God has taken on our debts himself. He has bought us with a price, and therefore everything owed us is now actually owed him, which then gives him the authority to tell us to forgive that debt. Um, he, doesn't, he doesn't encourage us to... You ever notice that when Jesus tells you to forgive debts, it's all through Scripture to forgive, that it's never like, because it's good for you, or it'll make you happy, or because it's fun, or it's, it's always because, because I forgave you a bigger debt. Like, you should forgive other people because I forgave you a bigger debt. It's very transactional in the idea of like, you, you, you can give up the $1,000 somebody owes you because of the million dollars you owed me that I forgave, and you'll still come out $999,000 ahead. Like, that's the picture created. And so, for us to decide at some point to, to step into the covenant of forgiveness, I expect and require no payment from you. That may require a lot of work. <coughs> most, most good therapists, Josh, would be excellent um, at talking from your childhood um, and for other things that is affecting your psychological energy. That's an example of one. Um, but bitterness and resentment, unforgiveness, physical disciplines, spiritual disciplines, fasting and studying scripture and engaging with the truth and that kind of stuff. All those affected. What else? Bad mattress. <laughs> yeah. Back pain. Yeah. Absolutely. Think of anything? <coughs> yep. That's a, that's a great, so as Josh is saying, when we go into psychological debt in other places in life, so when you are living in psychological debt, one of the concepts of rest is the idea of margin. Um, the biblical picture, you know, Jesus says of, um, in, in Matthew 11, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I, will get, and I will rest you. I will, I think it's the active verb there is rest. Um, <laughs> but it's fascinating because Jesus then says, because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So in other words, he's taking someone who is weary and heavy laden and giving them a burden and a yoke. So the only way that makes any sense if what that means is he is replacing your current burdens and yokes. And so a lot of times psychologically, one of the reasons therapy can give people much better, a much better whole expression of their psychological energy is because they learn how to take the lies the yokes, the burdens that aren't theirs. They're their wife or their husband's burdens and yokes. They're their mom and dad's burden and yokes. They're the culture's burdens and yokes. And to toss them, and then they only carry the ones that Christ gives. The picture there, I've heard, I mean, people get carried away with Jesus' analogies sometimes, but uh, all the time we do. But 
I mean, it's very likely that the concept of easy there means it actually fits versus a bad fitting yoke which will kill you, rub you to death. So um, <coughs> there's a lot there. I, I would encourage somebody at the individual level, and this isn't just because I, I have a therapy office, but if, if you don't have that, if you're not engaging with that, if you're not experiencing 100% of what you think you should be experiencing, therapy can be a great way at the individual level of spotting that. What is it in your life? What lie you're believing? What truth have you forgotten? What habits have you formed? Whatever they're costing you. Um, and that's and then like we talked about with depression and anxiety and things like that, those always suck that. All right, so good. Probably to wrap up if we're supposed to be done about nine.